Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, June 2nd. We begin with another edition of Ask the Doctor, focusing on COVID-19 questions sent in by you, the listener. And as always, we're joined by Dr. Craig Janney, infectious disease specialist with the University of Calgary, and we have not stumped him yet. Next, we look at the second dose rollout plan for vaccines announced yesterday by the province. We speak with Global News reporter Sarah Offen for details on what you need to know when it comes to booking your second shot. Can the words we use during the pandemic lead to unintended consequences? We're going to talk to a professor of psychology who says some of the terminology surrounding the coronavirus crisis can, in fact, spark racist reactions. And finally, it's our monthly catch-up with Dr. Axel Morenschlager, the Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science. This time out, the nature doctor shares with us the success story of the fisher. Saying good morning to Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Good morning to you, Dr. Janney. Good morning. We're going to talk about the mixing and matching of uh, the different doses of vaccines in a second, but out the gate, this is, this is one that I think you'll be able to really bottom line for us. The texter says, I am still confused. Why do we need a second vaccine? two big things. One is it extends how long your immunity lasts. So this is why with our other vaccines, we often have years of protection because we fully boost the immune system. But the second reason is we actually see better immunity. So it gets stronger after the boost. And that is particularly true for the variants. So in Alberta, we have a lot of variants. If we want our vaccine to be most protective against those variants, we need that second shot. Dr. Janney, the Premier yesterday talked about people with natural immunity being part of those who are technically vaccinated. Is that somebody who's had COVID and recovered? And do they need the first shot? Do they need a second shot or neither? So those are the people that have had COVID and have recovered. But the current guidelines, both in Canada and the U.S., is for those people to still be vaccinated. And the reason for that is we know that people that have naturally recovered from the illness, their immunity fades faster than people that have been vaccinated. But we also know that those people have less immunity against other variants. So their immunity against the original strain is pretty good, but those viral variants that are now circulating in the province seem to break through that natural immunity. So as a result, we are still recommending those people still get vaccinated. Both shots? Uh, it will depend on the individual situation, but the U.S. CDC was saying one shot. Health Canada has still just called it vaccination, so typically the full course. Dr. Jenny, if I had the AstraZeneca for my first shot, we're now told that we have options when it comes to the second. We can keep with the AstraZeneca or maybe choose a Pfizer or Moderna. Is there a benefit if I choose a different vaccine than the AstraZeneca for my second shot? now we've not seen an improvement in that although there may be a signal we we don't have the end of that study we have the interim results which are laboratory tests that say mixing and matching does generate a very good immune response so the the question about an advantage uh, is a little bit open the real advantage is there's some flexibility we don't have to wait for astrazeneca to arrive in the province we don't have to wait for distribution you can now basically receive the first shot available so that we can get those second shots out to people as soon as possible Okay, uh, this one, infections, somebody texted in to ask infections have been decreasing as well as daily testing. So is, is this obviously, would it be obvious that these are just fewer people now getting infected and therefore don't need to be tested? 
It seems to be, yes, and that's encouraging news. So our total number of testing has gone down, but so has our positivity rate, which means we're getting a much better handle on the actual number of cases in the community. So we're not just missing them. That percentage is coming down as well as the total number. So it's all really good news. Now, the only catch to that is it's coming down because we're vaccinating. Great news. That's what we're trying to do. But we also still have restrictions in place. So, so those loss of cases reduction is likely a combination of both restrictions and vaccine. And as we ease those restrictions, we have to make sure enough vaccines in the community to pick up that slack. We, we've heard a lot about the, the waiting in between vaccines. And yeah, yes, we've told before waiting 12 weeks, but now we're hearing you can get it in a shorter time span. Does that change the efficacy? It does a little bit. So these, for example, AstraZeneca is still recommended 8 to 12 weeks. But the real-world data, the data off the ground, seem to suggest that the closer you get out to the 12 weeks, as opposed to closer to 8 weeks, we actually had a better immune response following that booster. So although 8 to 12, both good, we want to make sure we're not rushing that. And that also gets back into the, the message from the Premier yesterday, that we don't want people jumping the queue or going early. Not only are they taking a dose away from somebody who needs it, but they might actually be hurting their own immune response. We need to ensure that we're sticking as close to those guidelines as possible. So is it the same for all of the shots then, the same distance between? No, it's not. And right now, Pfizer and Moderna were on phase three trial recommending three to four weeks. But again, real world data has suggested closer to 10 weeks for Pfizer actually gives a better immune response. So this delay strategy in Canada, although we didn't have that information and, you know, we'll fully admit that this is a bonus to to getting vaccine out to as many people as possible. It turns out we might actually be uh, building a stronger immune response with the Pfizer because of this slightly increased delay than than what was approved in the phase three trials. Awesome. Okay, can we ask you to hold on a couple? Of minutes, of Dr. Jenny. Great. We'll be right back with Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the U of C. Dr. Janney, this is something that we've heard about, it seems like over the past week or 10 days, the expiration dates surrounding these vaccines, particularly AstraZeneca. And this texter says, expiration means not effective after that date to me. What do you think? Yeah, no, this this is something that I, I too, had been following in the news. And when we look into these medications, we have to remember that these expiration dates are set well, well in advance of the actual expiration date. We, We leave a large margin of error here. We don't want, for example, to be administering vaccines a day before they actually become ineffective. So there's a a big safety margin in there. And in consultation with the company, we do have assurances that those vaccines can be extended by a month um, and still work. So Health Canada has reviewed that data, and we know that there's no safety or efficacy concerns. To me, I think the bigger frustration is how we end up letting these things sit on a shelf that long and, and, you know, our failure to get them distributed, um, not just here in Alberta, but across the country. Mm -hmm. That's the frustrating part, that we should never be dealing with a deadline such as that. Although, you know, we do have reassurances. We've seen the data. They will continue to work, and we can uh, continue using those vaccines. It's not like the milk when someone tells you to smell the milk. (laughs) Somebody had asked before. It's it's much like the best before versus a true expiry date. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay, this question, like COVID and the variant, we're still learning new side effects about these vaccines. What studies have been done to assure us, say, a year from now, they were safe to give to young kids like 12-year-olds? 
So we, we have evidence of that already. So early uh, studies in the UK doing the initial trials, we're looking at younger demographics. And those people that participated in the phase three trials are still being followed. And this is standard practice for any vaccine or any new medication. So although there is a typical defined safety window of a couple months, those people are tracked long term just to ensure that we did not miss anything. And the good news is more than a year out now after trying these initial vaccines in the phase two and phase three trials, we're not seeing any uh, safety signal that would change our recommendations. One last one here I think we have time for. Do you think fully vaccinated people should be required to quarantine after travel, especially after having negative tests? So I think we have to be looking at modifying those those rules. And I do think at this point it is still critical that they undergo some form of quarantine. The, the goal here would be a much shorter quarantine. And the reason why is... Although they are fully vaccinated, there are variants out there, and each of those variants do have the ability to perhaps infect a vaccinated person, and then that person becomes a risk bringing a new virus into Canada, which could set back our entire effort. So we need to make sure that they they get a, a double negative test that they're not bringing a viral variant into the country. Super quickie for you before we let mm. you go. Here's a 70-year-old who says they're getting extreme hot flashes after the vaccine and it still aches at the needle site. I think I suspect I know what your answer is, but what should people do if they have any concerns yeah. like this? <laughs> so We've talked a lot, yes. Uh, please talk to your doctor. So the, the, I, I've not seen any evidence that, that this would be something to be concerned about. But again, every patient is different. And, you know, without knowing full medical history, you, you need to talk to your family physician, your primary care provider, who can put this in the context of your overall health picture. Dr. Jenny, you've done it again, answered all the questions submitted today. We appreciate your time. <laughs> Anytime, guys. Take care. You too. Dr. Craig Janney, Associate Professor, Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. It was an issue flagged a few weeks ago in Calgary. The vaccination rate east of Deerfoot Trail was sitting much lower than the west of the highway. Now Alberta Health is hoping to get people in that part of the city up uh, to speed when it comes to getting the jab. Uh, the initiative comes just as the province announces a rollout plan for second doses of the vaccine. With more, we're joined by Global News reporter Sarah Offen. Hello, Sarah. Good morning, Andrew. Well, let's start with the second doses because it, it's kind of staggered when people can sign up. Can you break down the dates of eligibility? Yeah, so if you had your dose, your first dose back in March, uh, now's your time. You can book your second dose at, right away. And if you've got your shot uh, in April, you can book your second dose beginning June 14th. May vaccines open up for seconds uh, June 28th. And by the end of June, everyone uh, turning 12 this year and older will be able to book their second dose appointment. So that's to book your second dose. Doesn't mean your appointment will be within that window though, right? Yeah, I know. So my my mom was in, my parents, I sh my both of them, I should say, were, were in that first round in March. So they booked yesterday and they were able to get in uh, mid-June. So I think that's kind of uh, what we're hearing from people, that it takes a couple weeks. Do we know, Sarah, for example, for me, and I think Sue as well, it'll be the 14th that we're eligible for that second dose. Can you book it ahead into that time frame or do you have to wait to that particular date to get online or to go to the clinic and book it? 
Well, I'm a curious specimen, so I went ahead just to see what would happen if I had tried to book. Now, I was a, a, a May vaccine, so um, they said no way, basically, as soon as I tried to, as soon as I put in my first dose date, which is what you have to do on the AHS website, um, it said, nope, you're not eligible yet. I expect that you would probably get the same response for May 1-1. I don't know how it would work for, for pharmacies. Okay, now, and what about, since you're curious, what about choosing <laughs> your vaccine? So, Andy and I both got AZ, the first one. We're thinking yeah. Pfizer for the second because it seems to be an even better boost. When I book, do I choose what kind of vaccine I want? Yeah, essentially. Um, yeah, so this is kind of an interesting development, of course, that we heard from the National Advisory Committee for Immunizations yesterday, giving the, the green light for this mixing of vaccine doses. So essentially, when you go into book, you will have the opportunity to say uh, which of the um, uh, doses or sorry which of the vaccines you would prefer to get for the second whether it's Pfizer or Moderna or a second dose of AstraZeneca. Now, right now, we know uh, that the recommendation on AstraZeneca has been to stick as close as possible to that 12-week mark for second doses. So we were getting a lot of questions specifically from those who had received that vaccine on why the province wasn't booking them in for their second. So initially, some people uh, were able to book uh, actually on the long weekend, and then AHS suddenly and mysteriously halted those bookings. Although the province hasn't said so explicitly, uh, we were um, some suggesting that the province maybe was waiting for this science that came out yesterday and the Fed's recommendation on the mixing of doses before allowing them to book. So now we know, uh, yes, we can go ahead and and book uh, mRNA if if you so choose, if you had the AstraZeneca or the Covishield um, and uh, opening up some some questions around that. But uh, again, I think the province just wanted to make sure that people had the opportunity to get the vaccine that uh, that they wanted for the we have about 20 seconds, Sarah, but we have to touch on this. We're used to the COVID vaccine tests through a drive-through. Now the COVID vaccine itself, uh, sorry, the COVID uh, test, but the vaccine, you can get it, but in particular area of the city, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we're here at Village Square this morning at the Leisure Centre, and this is where we're going to have uh, a vaccine clinic. So this is similar to what we've seen, uh, for example, at meat plants, uh, where they've had these pop-up clinics. But this is going to be coming to Village Square between 8 a.m. and 10 p.m. You can come in. It's it's. Uh, no appointment necessary if you haven't got your first shot yet. This is first shot only. Uh, and again, the sooner you get that one, the sooner you get your second. So uh, the province trying to get that final push to get to those first jabs in people's arms. Awesome. Thanks so much for the update. You're so welcome. That is Sarah Offen, Global News reporter. A new study coming out of the University of Waterloo is looking at how certain words used during the pandemic may have sparked racist reactions. We're joined now by Associate Professor of Psychology at the U of W, Hilary Bergseeker, to discuss her research. Good morning to you, Professor. Good morning. Thank you for taking the time with us. So, uh, Why have you decided to study the use of language during the pandemic and, and how people react to it? Well, um, I was bothered and concerned by trends I was seeing in the media where people, including the then-President of the United States, were starting to use the term Chinese virus. Um, to describe COVID-19, and I was um, aware that there was guidance that we aren't supposed to use terms like that, but I couldn't find evidence anywhere to actually support those claims, to show any direct tests of the effects of actually using language that labels a specific group of people and associates them to a disease um, versus using more neutral sort of medical terminology. So my lab and my collaborators and I set out to fill that gap. Well, I would imagine the rise in, uh, you know, Asian hate 
crimes that we've seen would be an example, but what have you learned so far? Well, what we have seen is quite compelling evidence that using the term Chinese virus as opposed to the comparison term COVID-19 recommended by the World Health Organization um, is associated with increases in anti-Chinese attitudes among people who are not themselves identified as Chinese. So when we look at people in our sample who um, are not of Chinese background, they are Um, blaming Chinese individuals more for the pandemic. They're saying they're going to avoid Chinese restaurants. They want to adopt more punitive measures toward people who don't quarantine. They're expressing more hostility, um, more explicitly anti-China attitudes. We're seeing lots of just different signals and indicators that they're having a sort of intensely negative response to Chinese people that wouldn't be present if we use a more neutral term like COVID-19. You know, you've used, uh, Professor, the, the term China virus, which is, I think, something we're all familiar with. And again, you look down south uh, when we did hear it from former President Donald Trump. Are there other phrases that have been used during the pandem- uh, pandemic that are particularly troublesome? Well, we did see early on that media were pretty split between using um, Wuhan virus and Chinese virus. Um, in some analyses that my lab has done looking at Twitter data, it does seem that the, the generic label Chinese virus is arguably the worst. It's the most strongly associated with disgust and hostility, for example. Um, and the Wuhan virus is also problematic, but there's a weaker link with that negativity. So I think we do see some evidence that using broad labels that apply to entire people groups are especially harmful, but even just referring to a UK variant, a Brazilian variant, South African variant, as we've been hearing recently, or as we were seeing a year ago when this research was originally conducted, talking about the Wuhan virus, even even those kinds of um, very regional labels are still um, associated with negative um, sentiment. So it, it seems like this is a pretty broad effect. Certainly makes a lot of sense. Professor, I'm curious, though, beyond that, are there other words or phrases that we use in everyday life that are sort of non-pandemic related that might also be triggering for some people? Absolutely. And we see that this affects people's public opinions. When you ask them about their attitudes, for example, to non-citizens versus illegal aliens, people report much more sort of favorable, positive feelings and attitudes toward non-citizens. And research like this um, on this topic by social psychologists actually recently led the U.S. government to change the terminology that it uses in its you know, laws and policy documents to the, the less stigmatizing non-citizens term. We see the same thing for assisted dying versus euthanasia, for gay marriage versus same-sex marriage. The words definitely matter, and it's important as we try to have productive, constructive social discussions to use terminology that's precise and respectful um, and not stigmatizing. Professor, we have an interesting text here, um, and it says that, you know, we call it the Spanish flu. Maybe we shouldn't call it that anymore because I'm Spanish and I'm offended by that. So I'm wondering if this is a case now that because it's 2021 and we did see the proliferation of the term China virus or Wuhan virus, um, you know, if this is something that we'll look at moving ahead versus, you know, back 100 years ago. Do you think that the times have changed? Do you think that's something that is factored in? They have and they haven't. I think that the practice of scapegoating or blaming minority groups 
for diseases. Um, that goes back to the Middle Ages at least, so it's not, unfortunately, a new phenomenon that people are looking for someone to blame. Um, we Even with the Spanish flu, that's a fascinating example because um, it didn't originate in Spain. Um, scientists are fairly divided about whether it originated in Kansas or also possibly somewhere in Asia. The only reason that it became associated with Spain is that the Spanish media were more honest than the rest of the world about reporting death tolls. So it's a great example of why regional names can be deeply misleading, um, that this, this was actually uh, you know, a virus carried predominantly by United States troops to you know, the, the, um, the Western Front and so forth. It wasn't, it wasn't something that originated in Spain. So if I were Spanish, I could see that being fairly yeah. offensive, too. Um, but aside from the accuracy question, you know, whether the, um, the COVID-19 um, virus did indeed emerge from a lab versus a market versus some zootic origin somewhere in China versus elsewhere, um, debating that point doesn't help us solve the actual problem at hand. It doesn't help us control the pandemic, and it can lead people to have very misguided notions about who's more likely to be susceptible, who's more likely to be contagious, um, and to be, you know, to unfairly target and stigmatize um, people of a particular people group. Professor, I'm curious, being Pride Month, you mentioned gay marriage versus same-sex marriage. What is it between those two sets of terminology that people like or don't like or, or have an issue with? Um, the term gay marriage receives more popular support. Um, I mean, it's the same uh, phenomenon that we see with um, a variety of terms that if you if you look at the group, the names that groups themselves choose, so names that are endonyms, as we call it, a name that comes within a group of people. Those tend to be ones that are a bit more respectful, that have um, a bit more positive meaning for the group themselves. And um, lots of people identify as gay. That's actually a very positively held identity. It's also, again, it's the term that receives more popular support. Um, when you ask people about their attitudes toward gay marriage, they're more pop positive. When you ask about same-sex marriage, they're a bit less positive. They're not night and day, of course, because people's attitudes aren't just a function of which language term mm -hmm. you use, but um, it's not surprising to me that the, the term gay marriage would get uh, stronger um, positive support from people. And I think it's important to engage in, with positive terms for phenomena so we can have constructive social discussions about actual policies. Mm -hmm. Very interesting research. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your time this morning. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Thank you. That is uh, Hilary Bergseeker. Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Waterloo. Uh, every month, the Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science joins us to discuss all the great conservation work our zoo is involved with, not just here, but around the globe. So joining us once again is Dr. Axel Morenschlager. We call him the nature doctor around these parts. This week, focusing on those adorable, carnivorous, forest-dwelling creatures <laughs> called the fisher. Good morning, Dr. Axel. Good morning. So, uh... You, you have a question written for us, and I love these uh, questions and mm -hmm. intros into your segments because you explain them beautifully. Uh, does curiosity really kill the cat? That's right. Does it kill the cat? And, you know, how does curiosity pay off or not for us, mm -hmm. for animals? So talking a little bit about personality and behavior, you don't have to worry. It's not about your personality <laughs> or your behavior. It's actually about animals. Okay. Uh, okay, so you can relax. But the, the thing is, you know, behavior makes a big difference for animals, too. And individuals, of course, are different for animals. And, and it can make the difference for them between life and death. And so I, I wanted to talk to you about a special fisher. You already mentioned them. They're, they're like a, uh, a forest 
mini Wolverine in my mind, you know. Mm -hmm. And in Washington State, you might remember that they went extinct because of habitat loss and over-trapping. But the Americans came to ask us for help um, because there's still healthy populations in Alberta. And so together with Alberta Trappers Association, Washington Fish and Wildlife, U.S. National Park Service, and Conservation Northwest, We've been working over years to bring them back, right? And so 89 fishers have actually been transferred to Washington State. That's all, you know, a big success in itself. Now, we should talk about one particular fisher, and her name is Luna. Luna? Luna comes, yes. Is she Luna, a sexy fisher? Very, yeah, very much. I thought yeah. so. And, and, you know, that might pay off. We'll, we'll find out in a second here. <laughs> <laughs> but Luna was actually part of a group of fishers named after Harry Potter characters. So unlike Harry's close friend Hermione, who was always very logical and smart, Luna loved good, seemed to just have like a blind faith in many things. And she was thought to be a little bit gullible, you know. And so that's kind of a worrying label. So we wanted to see if that was true for Luna the fisher. She came from the wild about 60 kilometers northwest of Edmonton where she lived around many other fishers and in a place where there's lots of forests and farmland. And, and she came to the Calgary Zoo for a two-week stay, um, being helped by our animal and veterinary care teams. And at the same time, she was part of a study that we're conducting, looking into the behavior of the fishers and how it might relate to their survival in the wild. So Luna was actually pretty shy, not impossibly shy, but pretty shy. Even when there were like cool new objects and stuff being put into her enclosure, she was pretty slow to come out and check them out. But see, this is where maybe sometimes being careful pays off. Mm -hmm. She was released into the wild just before Christmas in 2018. And the cool thing that's just happened is that she was sighted on motion detection cameras in the forest in the U.S. two and a half years later, right after release. And that's already remarkable, but what's so cool and so cute is that she's been seen with four little fishery babies, fishery young called kids. And on the cameras, you can see that she's actually taking them from the cavity of a tree where they were born, and she's moving them one by one in her mouth from, uh, to another tree. And so this is actually the first evidence of first uh, of uh, wild-born fishers in the northern Cascades of Washington in about half a century. With an Alberta <laughs> touch to it, really, right? Oh. oh, yeah, Alberta made all the way. This is fantastic. Yeah. I love it. Uh, Axel, how often are you and the Calgary Zoo approached for help with the conservation work from anywhere in the world? <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, uh, um, weekly at the least and it's uh, we've, we've given different, different examples but even on a daily basis really we're helping other organizations from around the world specifically in terms of conservation translocation efforts to bring species back or to work with uh, communities so basically finding win-win solutions for you know local communities that need economic benefit in a way that helps to preserve uh, wildlife as well. We don't have a ton of time, but I want to get to this because, you know, the newest and latest. You've got some new findings regarding our bred Vancouver Island marmots. Let's talk about what you found. Yeah. Um, so Vancouver Island marmots, as you might know, are one of the most endangered uh, ma- mammals on the planet. And we've been involved in breeding them for release and, and actually in the recovery of the species going from 33 in the wild uh, to over 200 now in less than 20 years. 
And the main thing that kills them uh, in the wild are wolves, cougars, and golden eagles. So we've just finished analyses um, uh, where we've actually looked at how they react to a wolf, a cougar, goat, or marmot. But it's not actually the real animals. It's like taxidermy mounts. And we present them to the marmots just outside their enclosures, okay? And we want to see how their behavior changes to these things over time. So the ones that came from the wild, the original marmots, they're quite scared of the predators, and that's mm -hmm. good. Even a generation or two later, they're still pretty scared. But what we've just found is that by the time they're in the third, fourth, or fifth generation, they're starting to get you know, a bit confused. First of all, they're quite jumpy. In general, they're just a bit more nervous. And secondly, they think that a goat or a marmot is as scary as a cougar. And that's not a bad that's not a good <laughs> yeah, thing. I was say. Is, so yeah, that's a bad thing? Well, it's not, not terrific because if you're heading into the wild, you, know, you, you want to be able to distinguish and act right. the right way. So we're one of the first to see this kind of thing happen so early, especially in a program that's genetically fine, but actually the behavior changes. So this is quite novel, and it allows us now to look at ways of actually uh, selecting the ones that are best to go out or to, to encourage the behavior to basically train them to be scared of the right things again. And the cool thing in the big context, because you asked about help wor worldwide, is because we're one of the first or maybe the first to discover this kind of thing early in programs, we think now we can help other programs around the world to address their um, behavior in their very endangered species quite early so that they can optimize the survival after release really early in those programs. Axel, we are so lucky to have the opportunity to talk to you, and we're so lucky to have you and your team at the Calgary Zoo doing what you do to keep species surviving around the world. Thank you so much for the update this morning. Thank you. We're lucky to have you and all your listeners that support us all the time. Thank you for supporting Wildlife Conservation. You have a great day. Thanks for joining us. Dr. Axel Morenschlager is the Calgary Zoo's Director of Conservation and Science. We call him the Nature Doctor. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.